The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. For 200 years, a singular poem has delighted children on Christmas Eve. And I'll go farther than that and say that it's one of those rare seasonal poems that people read year-round, and not just children, grown-ups, too. It's been heavily anthologized. I'm referring to Clement C. Moore's classic poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, also known as The Night Before Christmas or "'Twas the night before Christmas, and you may know it for that very famous first line, "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house.'" And you might know it for its other features, too. The names of the reindeer, for example. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, etc. Our view of St. Nick or Santa as a dimpled, round-bellied, chubby and plump, right jolly old elf with twinkling eyes and rosy cheeks and a nose like a cherry. That's all from this poem. The poem was Clement C. Moore's most popular work by a wide margin. By the time he died, late in life, he was revered as the father of St. Nick, the father of Christmas Eve, the father, it was said, of Christmas itself. But was this all a big lie? A scholar on the hunt for the real author of the poem says, yes, it was. Clement C. Moore was not the jolly old creator of Jolly old St. Nick, he was a nasty piece of work, mean and miserly, and he stole the glory of this poem with his crooked little hands, smiled when others attributed it to him. Scrooge stayed Scrooge in this tale, and nobody called him on it until the 21st century, when the poem's real creator finally got some posthumous love. The story of a legendary and allegedly stolen poem today on the history of literature. Hello, 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 everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, your host, and this is the History of Literature, your humble little podcast at your service. We take a look at a literary mystery today, and from the outset, let me give all credit where credit is due. I've taken this from numerous news accounts and encyclopedias and internet sources and so on, as I usually do, but I want to make sure this time to give a particular person credit, and his name is Don Foster, a professor of literature at Vassar, who wrote a book called Author Unknown on the Trail of Anonymous, which provides the lion's share of this story. And he, in turn, would probably give credit to some local historians, some relatives of key figures in our tale, who kept this whole thing afloat until Professor Foster could come along and, I think, pretty persuasively make the case that the world may have gotten this wrong for almost 200 years. But maybe we should just read the poem and start out that way. You've probably heard it before. But it's not a long poem, and it's a fun one. Listen in particular for the poem's rhythms. The cadence, as that will be important. But that's really something you'd listen to anyway. It's unforgettable. As, as etched into our brain as Dr. Seuss. Speaking of which, let's quote Dr. Seuss here first. It will probably not surprise you which poem I'm going to quote from. Here we go. 
And the more the Grinch thought of this Who Christmasing, the more the Grinch thought, I must stop this whole thing. Why, for 53 years I've put up with it now. I must stop this Christmas from coming. But how? Then he got an idea, an awful idea. The Grinch got a wonderful, awful idea. I know just what to do, the Grinch laughed in his throat. And he made a quick Santa Claus hat and a coat. And he chuckled and clucked. What a great Grinchy trick. With this coat and this hat, I look just like St. Nick. That's Dr. Seuss writing more than a hundred years after Clement Clark Moore. Or maybe we should say after the publication of the OG St. Nick poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas. Let's hear the poem. Listen to the cadence, which you would anyway, but also listen to the word all in all its forms. It pops up a lot, and that will become an important part of our story as well. So here we go. This is the version on the Poetry Foundation website. A Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap when out on the lawn there arose such a clatter I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters, and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his coursers, they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donder and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur, from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. 
A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew, like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Hmm, there's the poem. Very familiar, right? It's still pretty fresh after 200 years. Moves right along. And such... Memorable lines, visions of sugar plums danced in their heads, and I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. And on and on. Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Happy Christmas. I think that's changed to Merry Christmas by some modern readers of the poem, isn't it? Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night is how it was in the original. So, let's hear some of the history. The poem was published on December 23rd, 1823, and a newspaper called The Sentinel, which was based out of Troy, New York, was published anonymously. It had been sent in reputedly by a friend of a man named Clement C. Moore. It was widely popular and went through many printed versions after that. By 1837, people were attributing the poem to Moore in print, and in 1842, the famous poet and editor William Cullen Bryant included the poem in an anthology of American poetry. Here, he, uh, Cull William Cullen Bryant dropped the anonymous and just said, it's by Clement C. Moore. And then two years later, Moore included the poem in a collection of his poetry, 1844. That's now 21 years after the poem had first been published. And, and reportedly, Moore was reluctant to include the poem in this collection, but his children urged him to put it in. So he did. The poem, Visit from St. Nicholas, was more popular than Moore's other, more scholarly works. It brought him more fame. Fifty years after his death, a tradition began of holding a service on the Sunday before Christmas, which includes a reading of the poem and a procession past Moore's grave. They still do that over a hundred years later. Parks and playgrounds and schools have been named after Clement C. Moore, thanks to this poem. He had some reason for sorrow in his life. His sons were once described as, quote, a compound of imbecility deep beyond all fathoming, with an appetite for chambermaids beyond all precedent, end quote. <laughs> Imagine, that's how your kids were turning out, as boys anyway. His girls apparently were better. His other child, this poem, did much better. By the time Moore died, he was widely known as the father of St. Nick in America. The Poetry Foundation devotes an article to Moore, including this poem, and no others. Although he wrote other poems, he is today regarded, even revered, as an American poet, chiefly on the strength of this one beloved poem. But here's the problem. What if he didn't write it? What if he stole the poetic valor that rightfully belonged to someone else? Just who was Clement Clark Moore? 
And was he capable of doing such a thing? How, if, is, if so, how did he pull it off? Who was the real author of Twas the Night Before Christmas? We will dive into all of that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Did you find it odd that Clement C. Moore didn't want to publish his famous poem under his own name when he put together his collection? Well, the reason he gave at the time was that he didn't want it to distract from his scholarship. This was just a kid's poem, he said. I wrote it for my kids, but it was attributed to him and he didn't deny it. So he allowed himself to to be pressured into including it. But was he really concerned about the impact of this poem on his reputation? Have you ever met a poet who didn't want to be anthologized? Who didn't want to take credit for a popular poem? Is it possible? Is it possible that his anxiety stemmed from something else? Maybe because he didn't want to be discovered as someone who didn't actually write the poem. Imagine that you're a poet. And a great poem is published anonymously, and someone distinguished gives you credit for it, and nobody objects. You maybe wonder if maybe you're always going to be able to take credit for this poem. But you also know that somebody else might come forward at any moment and say, Hey, wait, you didn't write it. I wrote it, and here's the receipts. So you wait, biding your time, but then you have a problem. Your own anthology is going to come out. And your kids are saying, well, wait, what about that? What about the poem you're most famous for? The one that you're so popular? William Cullen Bryant included it in the best American poems. You're not going to include that in your own collection? Well, what do you do if you're Clement Moore? Clement C. Moore, do you include the poem in your anthology? In your own collection of verse? Do you claim credit for it? Your kids want you to do that, or do you hold off and wait and see what happens a little longer? Maybe see if this 
attribution to you eventually sticks. It's like finding money. You don't spend it right away. Maybe you don't even put it in the bank. Someone might come forward. But years go by and more years. At some point, it's yours. Right? When is it too soon to say, yes, I wrote this? Because at that point, you can't really... What happens if somebody comes forward at that point? You say, if, if it's just William Cullen Bryant, you say, oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't even notice. Huh, he made a mistake. Yeah, right, it's your poem. No problem. Take it. But isn't the temptation there? Yes. I'm getting a lot of praise for this one, unlike my other poems, which nobody really likes too much. This one was pretty good. Can I claim it? Well, what do you... <laughs> Do you think you can get away with it? Well, maybe not. There was another poet out there. Henry Livingston was his name. He was also writing poems, including some that were very similar to this one, which we will get into. Livingston had heirs. Children and great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, so on, so on. Great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. And all these years, they have kept alive a family legend that Henry was the one who wrote that famous poem and that Clement C. Moore stole the credit for it. The usurper, Clement C. Moore. Everybody's hero. What if, oh, he's getting all the credit. But it's our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Henry Livingston, who wrote the poem. That's what... The family kept saying, and then a couple of decades or so ago, they reached out and enlisted the help of a professor named Don Foster, who dug into this controversy and wrote a book about it, because what he found led him to believe that indeed Henry Livingston had written this poem. Now, Foster didn't have as much skin in the game, so to speak. He wasn't related to Livingston. And other than his intellectual curiosity and perhaps the idea that this was a compelling story and would make a compelling book, he had no real motive. He was trying to be an honest broker. But it's not hard to see that he became biased in one sense at least. He found himself rooting for Livingston, it appears to me, because... Henry Livingston, frankly, seems like a really decent guy. And Clement C. Moore sounds like a Grinch. Let's run through some differences. Here's the standard biography of Clement C. Moore. He was the son of a minister born in New York City in 1779. He was an excellent student, tutored at home by his father until he was accepted into Columbia, where he finished first in his class. He got a master's degree and a doctorate, all from Columbia. At age 34, he married a 19-year-old woman named Catherine Elizabeth Taylor, with whom he would go on to have nine children. He taught Oriental and Greek literature for 27 years at a theological seminary. He wrote books with titles like A Compendious Lexicon of the Hebrew Language in two volumes. And this, Snorfest, <laughs> Not to be too rude. Translated from the French, a complete treatise on merinos and other sheep. How complete do you need that treatise to be? 
<laughs> a partial treatise would be enough to knock me out, I think. In 1850, Clement C. Moore wrote a historical biography. Now, who does a biographer choose in 1850 for the honor of a historical biography? How about Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin or George Washington or Napoleon? No. His book is called George Castriot, surnamed Skanderbeg, King of Albania. I ask you, does this sound like a man who would write about a Santa Claus with a little round belly that shakes when he laughs like a bowl full of jelly? Still not convinced? How about this? Clement C. Moore owned slaves and fought against abolition, claiming that the institution of slavery was ordained by God for the health and prosperity of American society. He was against free public schools. He was against girls being educated at all. And he sought to protect his daughters from the dangers of book learning. He hated the American Indians, whom he called savages, and said they were innately deceitful. His father had been a British loyalist against the revolution, even though America made him rich. Clemency Moore ended up owning much of what is now Chelsea in Manhattan. He donated some money to the blind, to be fair, but in Foster's account, he comes across as an unremitting, un, un, uh, unrepenting Scrooge, nevertheless. The man who dances is like a caged squirrel, he wrote, and women who dance are like prostitutes. Foster looked through as much of Clement's writings as he could find, including personal letters, written up until Clem Clement died at the age of 84. And Foster did not find Clement Seymour saying Merry Christmas or Happy Christmas ever to anyone. But what about the other man, Henry Livingston? Here was a man who was born in 1748 in Poughkeepsie, New York, among the Dutch, which will be important. He called himself of Scottish descent, too, which will also be important. He was an American, though, old enough to take a side in the Revolutionary War, and he was a self-styled Yankee Doodle. He enlisted in the Revolutionary Army, and afterwards, everyone called him Major Henry out of a tribute to his service. And when he became a soft-hearted judge, they called him Judge Livingston. His friends and neighbors, though, called him Harry and referred to him as the jolliest man in the county. Foster has quite a find for the case on Livingston's behalf. Henry Livingston's first recorded words are from 1773 when he was 25 years old, writing a love letter to a 21-year-old woman named Sally Wells. And the very first words, the first words we have from Henry Livingston are these, Happy Christmas. Politically and temperamentally, Henry Livingston was pretty much the opposite of Clement C. Moore. He was in favor of schools and of equal opportunity, regardless of gender or skin color or cultural heritage. He wrote about Indians with admiration, praising the seriousness and courtesy of their speech. He called for emancipation as early as 1788, writing in his private journal, quote, A land of slaves will ever be a land of poverty, ignorance, and idleness. 
End quote. Only where equality is found or understood, he said, can love and all its delectable concomitants thrive. And yes, he was in favor of dancing and also theater and music. So, if we follow Foster, we might want Henry Livingston to be the author of this poem. And this is intriguing. We might even think that a curmudgeon like Moore could not have written something with so much joy and love of life intrinsic to the poem. That's intriguing. We can say that anyone can write anything. But is it an accident that Charles Dickens, a lifelong advocate for the poor, is it an accident that he is the one who came up with Scrooge and A Christmas Carol? Could that poem, with its message, have been written by a Crassus? Foster has some other textual evidence, or some analysis anyway. He offers several points, which have all been disputed as being either erroneous or inconclusive, not dispositive. Here's, here's the one I like the best. I think this is the strongest argument that Foster makes. I'm going to quote Foster on this one. Quote, Take the simple word all, which can be used either as a pronoun to mean every person or everything, as in all of the children were snug, or as an adverb to mean totally, as in the child was all snug. Most writers use all as a pronoun more often than as an adverb, but the Christmas poet does not. In the poem's first line, it's all through the house, not throughout the house. In line five, he writes, all snug in their beds, not snugly in their beds or so snug in their beds. These examples are followed in turn by dressed all in fur and all tarnished. That's a lot of adverbial all for one short poem. Against those four adverbs are five pronouns. Dash away all, filled all the stockings, all flew. Happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Vintage Henry. In Livingston's early verse and in Livingston's late verse and in his verse in between, the pronouns and adverbs are about evenly divided. In Moore's poetry, the pronouns outnumber the adverbs 10 to 1, and in Moore's prose, by more than 100 to 1. Henry writes, All along, all blithe, all blue, all craggy, all defenseless, all delightful, all early, all flaming, all forlorn, all hid, all keen, all this or that, all through the alphabet. End quote. Now, I find this persuasive, not quite dispositive, but sometimes these verbal ticks are hard to shake and are revealing. Then we have another example, which is the other poetry of Henry Livingston, which tended to write, uh, who tended to write his children's and comical verses in anapests. Da-da-dum, da-da-dum. Anapest. It's an easy word to remember because anapest is itself an anapest. That's how I remember it. Here's a letter that Henry Livingston wrote to his younger brother, Beekman. To my dear brother Beekman, I sit down to write, ten minutes past eight and a very cold night. Not far from me sits with a valency, valency is a wig, not far from me sits with a valency cap on, our very good cousin, Elizabeth Tappan, 
A writer, young seamstress, you'd ne'er wish to see, and she, blessings on her, is sewing for me. New shirts and new cravats this morning cut out are tumbled in heaps and lie huddled about. My wardrobe, a wonder, will soon be enriched with ruffles new hemmed and wristbands new stitched. The guy wrote this way in letters. Just the kind of practice for dashing off a poem like twas the night before Christmas, right? There are some additional arguments about the Dutch origins of the legend of St. Nick and Livingston being more Dutch and Scottish than more, and some of the word choices are more common among those with Scottish heritage and so on. And there's some stuff about more being a plagiarist which has been disputed. All of these arguments have been disputed. Moore's advocates came out in force. They're noisy too. There are some disputes about when the poem was composed. The Livingston advocates argue for an earlier date, but this might not be possible. Based on the textual evidence and so on, we don't have to dwell on all this too much. Because there are arguments on both sides, and I'll give you my tiebreaker in a moment. But first, let's deal with the biggest question. How could Moore have gotten away with this? Why didn't anybody say anything? Once it went into once it was attributed to him, and once it was in his anthology, his own collection, why why didn't anybody step up at the time? This is a principle we see used in history, right? We, I mean, we apply it to historical accounts. Let's say there's a, an account of a famous person that isn't well-sourced. We don't know what it's based on, but it seems to be true. It has some anecdotes and facts that seem plausible. The person who wrote it calls himself a historian. Well, if that account first comes out hundreds of years after the famous person is born, we might say, well, how do we know this is true? Where did this author get all this stuff? But if it comes out, let's say 20 years, when the famous person is still alive, 20 years later, 30 years, all the people who knew the famous person, even if the famous person isn't still alive, all the people who knew him are still alive, then we might say, well, this book was was widely read and discussed. Did anyone object to these accounts? Did anyone say, no, wait. This is all bunk. This is hokum. This this guy, this famous person wasn't born in Rome. He's from Sicily. Everybody knows that. Did anyone step up and say, this never happened. His wife didn't have the affair. We asked her and she denied it. Or were there soldiers crying out? We didn't march all night through the mountains. That didn't happen. In fact, we didn't even get to the battle until a week after it was over. And so on. That's how we test history. Right, and in this case, we're talking about a decade or two after the poem was published, and it's showing up attributed to Moore and then in Moore's collected works. Well, why didn't Henry Livingston step up and say, hey, wait, Clement Clark Moore didn't write this thing. I did. Well, that's where Moore's gamble, his alleged gamble, that that he wouldn't be discovered, I mean, the risk he took by claiming credit, well, this is where that gamble paid off because Livingston had died in 1828. Moore wasn't credited with authoring the poem until 1837, and by the time Moore put the poem in his anthology, 
Livingston had been dead for 10 years or more. Only his children were there to say, hang on, who the heck is Clement C. Moore and why is he claiming credit for dad's poem? Only they were there to say that. Apparently they did protest, but nobody believed them. They probably were thought of trying to cash in, thought they were trying to cash in. But I also wonder if maybe they didn't protest too hard because maybe they were kind of wondering themselves, well, did dad write this thing or... Or maybe he got it from Clement C. Moore somehow, or some. Maybe they they took it both took it from some other original source, or maybe not. Maybe the children didn't wonder about that. Maybe they were convinced. I might be thinking of my own experience with my own dad, who, when I was about ten or so, had a two or three week stretch where we thought he was the funniest man alive. He was on fire with jokes. I can remember him telling one in particular that still makes me laugh. He said, when we were little, we were so poor that we didn't even have a record player. He said, when I was little, my family was so poor, we didn't even have a record player. Grandma used to dress up in black and run around in a circle telling a story. <laughs> and that was the picture of my grandmother trying to imitate a record player running around. It still makes me laugh. He he had other jokes too, and we felt like we had been given a gift. Suddenly, we had a new dad, an incredibly funny dad. Could make us laugh out loud at the dinner table. And then one day, he was telling us a joke, and he stopped. And he got up from the table, left the room for a moment, and my sister followed him. And she noticed that he was pulling something from under the couch and studying it, and she ran over and seized it. It was a magazine, and it was open to an article with some jokes by Bob Hope, including the record player joke. Dad was a fraud. Now I think it was all harmless, and I even appreciate not only his efforts to entertain us, but that he had decided to space them out one joke at a time. <laughs> He didn't he didn't go through the whole article and try to do 20. Did maybe one a day, one one every couple of days. But back then it was a disappointment to learn the truth. Well, maybe maybe just maybe I'm speculating here. The Livingston kids thought at least some part of them thought, well, dad dad did write some good poems, but boy, all these people are saying that somebody else wrote this one, maybe Maybe Dad read the poem and then recited it to us as if it was his own. Well, that's pure speculation, so please don't quote me in the next round of battles on this topic. The raging battles on the authorship question. So, I'm very struck as I consider this dispute by Foster's view that Moore couldn't have temperamentally written such an upbeat poem and, in fact, Clement C. Moore wrote a different poem, and that poem was about Christmas. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll hear if Moore's poem... Let's see if he's upbeat and positive in this poem. In our Dickens analogy, let's see if Clement C. Moore is on the side of the poor and the working man, or if he's taking the side of Scrooge. Let's hear if Moore is more like St. Nick... Or if he goes all Grinch on us. 
Okay, this poem is called Old Santa Claus. This version attributed to more comes from allpoetry.com. Old Santa Claus with much delight his reindeer drives this frosty night o'er chimney tops and treks of snow to bring his yearly gifts to you. Okay, so far so good. Not the same cadence, but not all poet not all poets have to obviously not all poems by the same poet have to be the same cadence. That doesn't tell us too much. And so far it shows us that Moore has got some interest in Santa Claus and reindeer and chimney tops and so on. So I guess uh so far so good. Next stanza. The steady friend of virtuous youth, the friend of duty and of truth. Each <laughs> Each Christmas Eve, he joys to come where love and peace have made their home. Okay, are you getting some vibes here that Santa Claus is not the friend of duty and truth? I guess that's part of the Santa Claus story. The naughty and nice list, for one thing. And duty, I guess it's. I guess that's still naughty and nice, but also maybe this is something he has to do. But is he is he real happy about it? He joys to come, but <laughs> that's a weird way of saying it, to say he's happy and joyous while doing his job. But look at the next line. Where love and peace have made their home. Okay. This, this poet here sounds a bit like a schoolmaster, right? Making Santa into some kind of a, like a, a bit of a disciplinarian here. Be good and good things will happen. I'm watching you like a hawk. It's not a, a jolly old man with a, a belly full of, shakes like a bowl full of jelly. It's a steady friend of virtuous youth. Be good and good things will happen. And if not, well, I'm watching you like a hawk. The poet. Imagining this poet sitting down and saying, by God, I'll write a Christmas poem and I'll make sure these these ne'er-do-wells shape up. Am I overplaying that? We will see. Back to the poem. Through many houses he has been, and various beds and stockings seen, some white as snow and neatly mended, others that seemed for pigs intended. What? <laughs> what? Is this part of your... Santa tradition that he shows up and says, oh my God, this house is dirty. <laughs> Back to the poem. Where'er I found good girls or boys that hated quarrels, strife, and noise, I left an apple or a tart or wooden gun or painted cart. What the heck, Santa? Only a kid who hates noise can get an apple. You can't even give a noisy kid an apple. To some I gave a pretty doll, to some a peg top or a ball. No crackers, cannons, squibs, or rockets to blow their eyes up or their pockets. To blow their eyes up, Santa. <laughs> Santa, what are you imagining toys are for? <laughs> it keeps going. No drums to stun their mother's ear, nor swords to make their sisters fear, but pretty books to store their mind with knowledge of each various kind. So he's saying, you know those toys that you asked for? 
the swords you wanted and the drums. No, those I'm just crossing those off. Books for you. Even for the kids on the nice list. People. Don't do this. Not on Christmas. My house gave out books once for Halloween. It was a beautiful idea by my saintly elementary school mother, but my dad was sure to throw in some candy as well. We weren't going to risk getting our house set on fire by some angry little goblins. With these books that didn't even fit into their little pumpkins. They had to carry them around, hand them to their parents' hair. Guess what? The Wilsons gave... Jack Wilson's mom's giving out books over there. Clement C. Moore's Santa is holding back the drums and swords. Pretty books for you, and you will like them, if you even get that. Back to the poem. But where I found the children naughty, in manners rude, in temper haughty, thankless to parents, liars, swearers, Boxers or cheats or base tail bearers. Jeez. Jeez, Santa. Is this how you view the kids? You're bringing these toys to... You're really dwelling on this. Have kind of a long list. Almost like you have nine children of boys who are not turning out so well. And what did you do where you found the children to be like this? Did you give them nothing or a lump of coal? <sighs> Listeners, it is worse than that. Here is the final stanza. Let me read the second to the last stanza. So where we get on the roll so you get the full effect here. But where I found the children naughty. In manners rude, in temper haughty, thankless to parents, liars, swearers, boxers, or cheats, or base tail bearers, I left a long black birchen rod, such as the dread command of God directs a parent's hand to use when virtue's path his sons refuse. That's it. That's the end of the poem. <laughs> These are not happy kids all tucked into bed. They're a bunch of, of criminals awaiting their punishment. And by God, the punishment shall be delivered. As God tells us with a... Let me read that again. But where I found the children naughty, in manners rude, in temper haughty, thankless to parents, liars, swearers... Boxers or cheats or base tail bears. It's a more is getting carried away here. I hate naughty children, he's saying. Rude children, haughty children, thankless. They're all liars and swearers and boxers and cheats. And then with a sneer. And then with a sneer. He finished things off by indulging himself with a relishing of the delivery of the instrument of punishment, I left a long black birchen rod, such as the dread command of God. What the heck? What on earth? The dread command of God, God who loves you, but he's also a fierce and angry God. 
You have refused virtue's path, haven't you? This will hurt me more than it will hurt you. I, as a parent, have no choice here. This is the guy, or should I say, is this really the guy who capped off another Christmas poem with happy Christmas to all and to all a good night with visions of sugar plums dancing in the kids' heads? Do you think this guy who wrote this would care about visions of sugar plums dancing in kids heads this guy sounds more like someone who would say what are you what are you doing in here dreaming of sugar plums stop it this instant why don't you dream of all the sins you've committed and how likely it is you'll be burning in hell night night you awful child right so anyway there have been refutations of foster and arguments in favor of more. There's been counter-arguments. Finally, a guy with a computer came along and plugged in all their poetry and said, yep, it's Livingston, and it's not close. Clearly, the textual analysis points its finger at Livingston decisively. And I tend to agree. For me, it's that use of all and that crazy Santa Claus poem, which is frankly borderline sadistic and maybe not borderline. Maybe more, maybe he had two sides, Jekyll and Hyde after all. Maybe he got nicer for those moments when he wrote Twas the Night Before Christmas in a better, maybe he was in a better mood or had a different agenda, but I doubt it. Scrooges are going to Scrooge aren't they? Unless there's a Dickens there to supply a few ghosts to scare the, the mean and crazy out of them. But that's fiction, not real life. In real life, Scrooges believe in themselves and their own self-righteousness. They convince themselves that slavery is divinely inspired. They believe that a Christmas poem is a good chance to try to instill some virtue in some young minds, not to share some happiness just for the joy of sharing it, just to make life better. And in real life, sometimes the Scrooge will win. Listen to this. The Poetry Foundation, I have a lot of respect for them. This is They say this in their biography of Clement Seymour. Authorship of A Visit from St. Nicholas is typically attributed now to Major Henry Livingston Jr., they describe the dispute about the authorship, and they conclude, scholars today give the credit to Livingston. But that takes a few clicks to get to. That's for deep readers. That's for people who make their way to the biographical page of Clement C. Moore on the poem itself, where 99% of people are going to start and finish because they want to read their favorite Christmas poem about good old St. Nick. The Poetry Foundation lists an author, and the author they list is Clement C. Moore. So, that's the story of Clement C. Moore and Henry Harry Livingston. Let's call him that. Give him the nickname that those who loved him best gave him. And the story of Twas the Night Before Christmas. And by God, I can't believe we did this episode on the actual 200th anniversary of this poem, we truly did not plan that. Maybe I should just be quiet when I say we didn't plan that. Maybe maybe we did plan that. Maybe our interns 
slash elves helped old Jack Santa Claus out. Maybe there was some Christmas magic in the air. Now, let's not leave things there. Let's hear from one of our favorite guests. In our Christmas present to you, dear listeners, we bring back Marion Turner, professor at Oxford, biographer of Chaucer and the wife of Bath, to ask her what book she would like to be the last book she will ever read. Will she, will she take a Canterbury tale or two? Something else from that era or near it? Let's find out. Okay, I'm joined now by Chaucer expert Marion Turner, J.R.R. Tolkien, professor of English literature and language at the University of Oxford, and the author of The Wife of Bath, a biography. Professor Turner, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. That is such a fantastic question. And... So what I think I would do was it would be a book that I reread. Mm, I think mm -hmm. rereading is very undervalued, you know, yes. and some people think that that rereading is almost like a cop out. You know, if you've read it before, why are you reading it again? But I love rereading. And quite often I I reread books. And, you know, if you if I read them now as as, as someone in my 40s, sometimes I'll reread a book that I haven't read since I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And completely different to me completely different and that's fascinating to me thinking about how as a reader you can understand books so differently at different moments in your life and I, and sometimes you know if I'm if I'm very stressed out for example I find rereading an enormous comfort you know a real a real pleasure something that takes me back into familiar worlds yeah. so I don't think I want I would want this last book I wouldn't want it to be a workbook. I don't think I don't think at that moment I would want to be necessarily delving into something completely new and different. Yeah, I think right. I want it to be one of the books that I have reread perhaps more than any other and have got a huge amount out of it every time. And I think that book would be Jane Austen's Emma. Oh. Yeah. You enter into that world, you say, I yeah. know these people, I get to spend time with these people. Absolutely. And, you know, Emma, you know, it's a book of puzzles. It's a book of games. There are so many different layers going on that, you know, when you read it for the second time, you you real you see so much more in it than you do the first time <laughs> and yeah. that and that goes on i think you keep on spotting more things it is so intricate it's so dense and clever and i i think that that would be a really lovely way to be going off into that good night yeah you'd feel like you're your mind was still sharp and still engaged. It's not something that's so easy and, and familiar that you're just settling in, but that you're still active and alert and and kind of enjoying what it was like to be a human and to have a mind like that that could explore all those different things while you were here. Yeah, and I think there's, there's just so many different kind of variations of tone in Austin. You know, the way you can get 
the extreme humor, the comedy, but also, you know, the biting satire, the real kind of the anger about what's happening to to women and and what it's like for people in different classes and so on, the kind of background that's that's there behind this kind of world of of, of drawing rooms and, and strawberry parties. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot going on there. And and she draws the world so brilliantly. You know, you see those rooms, those streets. I can see them now in my mind, you know, the way I've thought about them. And it's I think it would be a, a great world to be to keep. Well, I do keep returning to it and I would like to, to continue to, to return to it right up to my, my last book. It's beautiful. Marian Turner, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. It's been my pleasure. So there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Marian Turner for that cameo appearance and to all of you for joining me. I do hope you have a very happy Christmas if you celebrate. And if you don't, well, let's just find something else in common. What do we have? Something secular? Something that wants very much to be included in the list of things to bring the spirit of peace and joy and love and excitement to you and all your loved ones, especially those precious little ones tucked into their beds. So here we go. Here's my offering. Happy podcast to all and to all a good night. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.